0: Jesus said these words, John chapter 16, verse 16, speaking to his followers. He said, a little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is, is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me. Truly I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. We worship a God who speaks. A theological text of 50 years ago bore that title. The God who speaks. And that's very important. Um, everyone has a view about God. Uh, They have views, we all do, about what God ought to be and ought not to be. And sometimes people will begin sentences, uh, I can't worship a God who? And they may say, I can't worship a God the most enduring and ancient and persistent Uh, ending of that declaration is I can't worship a God who will allow so much suffering in the world. Um, Marcion, one of the early great heretics, uh, by great heretic, I mean that their heresy was a a rejection of a fundamental truth. And it's a heresy that keeps uh, popping up. We can't keep it down. It's like those Uh, crocodiles in the carnival. You know, just you, you try to get rid of it, it comes up, and so these are great heresies. And at any given time, I have a favorite heretic. And for many years, of course, as a Reformed person, it was Pelagius. But lately, it's been Marcion. I'm so grateful to Marcion because he was wrong in such a helpful way. And he got it so wrong that it helps us to understand what is right. And... Uh, he said that the God uh, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ was not the creator of the world. It was not the God of the Old Testament. And uh, so he whacked that off, the Old Testament. And uh, once you start doing that, uh, it's hard to stop. He found a lot of parts of the New Testament he didn't like. You know. And I can identify with him, this love your enemies thing. Um, sometimes people will say, I just love everybody. And my next question is, well, how many people have you met? Uh, we might we might could cut into that if we introduce you to certain, certain people. Uh, but uh, when we do that, of course, we're making a God. We're making an idol, a God that suits us. And the problem with those gods is that they can't do anything that we need done. We, they can't forgive our sins. They can't raise us from the dead. They can't give meaning to our lives. Uh, they're powerless. And... Um, we don't worship a God who tells us everything he knows. That's very clear in the scriptures. Some things are revealed and some things are hidden. The things that are hidden, Moses said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy before they entered the promised land, that's for God alone. But the things that are revealed, that's for us and our children. And we shouldn't be surprised about this when we think about the gap in knowledge and understanding. Of God and his creatures, we do the same thing with children uh, if, a, if we're parents of young children, and we get news that's devastating about uh, someone has been has received uh, a terrible diagnosis or we receive something that's going to change our lives because of finances and it 's just beyond what the child can understand. we don 't have the children come in and try to tell them things that they they can't handle we we deal with them in the way that they can handle it. Um, John Calvin said that the Bible is written that way. It's written, it's given to us by which God accommodates to us and speaks to us in ways that we can understand and profit from. Uh, it's like a nurse who, who speaks to a, a baby, and you, you talk differently to a baby. You see, if a baby comes in and I start talking about Kierkegaard and a teleological suspension of the ethical, you'd think I was nuts. No, we turn into a different person when we communicate with a child and it's right to try to turn into the right kind of person to communicate with anyone. And our God hasn't told us everything that He knows. And we couldn't bear it if He did. And our desire to know what He knows is at the heart of our rebellion against God. Remember, the name of the tree in the garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that a strange name for the tree? I mean, if, if righteousness and holiness and what God expects of us is to face the good and the evil and choose the good and spurn the evil, what could be more helpful than to have the knowledge of good and evil? But see, we weren't created to do that. We weren't created to bear the burden of facing good and evil and choosing the good and spurning the evil. They were told, there's the garden, go enjoy. But no, 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 we wanted to be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, how has that worked out? We know a lot more about evil now, don't we? But in the new heaven and the the new earth, I'm going to do something risky now, uh, that I told Brad last night he should never do in church. But see, I get to leave later. Because it's not very favorable to the footprints poster. <laughs> so I loathe myself ahead of time. Um, uh, in the new heaven and the new earth, here's what the situation is not going to be. We've, prob- we've finally become righteous enough in ourselves that He can put us down on the sand to make our own footprints now. Sorry, that's terrible that I said that. You question the Trinity, question the deity of Christ, the substitutionary atonement. Don't mess with the footprints poster. So it's too late. I'm not seeking a position here. So um, I just know that, that that was wrong. That's not going to be it. We're, we're not going to have to face good and evil and choose good and spurn the evil because the evil's going to be gone. It's going to be completely gone. We wouldn't have it that way. We wanted to chum up with God and know more than we needed to know. And it's been terrible. And it's going to end someday. But God does tell us what we need to know. Just like parents try to tell their children what they need to know. God has spoken. So we're neither free to, invited to, uh, or or encouraged to, speculate about God's will, who God is, who we are, uh, what reality is, what the future holds. Because our God has spoken and He has told us exactly what we need to know and we should treat these as the great pearls that they are and just suck the marrow out of all the goodness of His Holy Word. The way by which we lay hold of all the benefits of being God's child is by faith. By trusting God. How do we trust God? We trust God by trusting His Word. Our God has spoken. We'll know we are Relating in truth to God when we stand below the Bible and receive its Word and through the preached Word. When Martin Luther spoke of the Word of God, he sometimes meant the Bible, but he more often meant the preached Word. A promise is given to the preached Word. Through the foolishness of the things preached, he is pleased to say. We'll know we're in the right position. We've left the preposterous, posture of imagining that we can stand above the Word of God and assess it and uh, and, uh, adjudicate it and render a verdict upon what it says. Our position is below as the grateful recipients of what we couldn't have earned and couldn't have imagined that the God who created the universe by speaking and knit each of us in our mother's womb. Do you believe that about yourself? You see, it's true even if we forget it or doubt it. He knit us together in our mother's womb. He knew our name before we were born. And to receive the, the Word of God. He has spoken to us. And the way we receive the benefits that are ours as the adopted children of God. Not just when we come to the Lord at first. But from then on, the whole Christian life. The same way we came to be the children of God is how we live as the children of God. We listen to the Word of God with gratitude. And we trust His Word. That's how we trust Him. There's no trusting God without trusting His Word. Because our God has spoken. And what wonderful things He has said to us. He has said to us, That our sins are forgiven. And they stay forgiven. Even as our trust might wax and wane, they stay forgiven. He has said that He will never leave us. I will always be with you. He has said that we will live forever in the new heaven and the new earth. And we're going to have a new body. I've needed a new body since I was 16 and I had my first lower back episode. I've been needing it. And let me tell you something. I'm counting on it. I want all the promises to come true. Okay? This new body is very, very important. Okay? Because the older I get, the better athlete I used to be. But only when I get the new body can I demonstrate what might have once been when I, before my body began to deteriorate. What wonderful things He's told us. And this is His pattern. He tells us things that have happened and what they mean. What happened at Passover and what it meant. This covering of the blood over the doorpost and the lintel. The passing of the death angel. He tells us that he created this world, and after each component of the creation, he said it is good. And he did. He created the animals, and it was good. And he, he separated the light from the darkness. It was good. He did all of these things. And then he finally, at the end, he created us. And when he created human beings, he didn't say it was good. Very interesting. Did not say it was good. But then after he created us and put Adam and Eve into the garden, then he said, it's very good. He actually didn't say it was perfect. And it wasn't perfect. Because the fall was possible. Now it was perfect to fulfill His purposes. He said it's very good. What is our God? Our God reveals Himself in the Bible as a homemaker. That's why we were created last. Everything else that was made was Him preparing the proper and fit home for His children. And until all of that was just as it should be, it wasn't time for us. And then He put us there. He tells us these things. What He has already done. He has shown us what He is like by how He has dealt with His people across the millennia. He tells us His character. He gives commands to us. And He does something else that is a pattern of His relationship with His children from the beginning to the end. When we love someone, we study to please them. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but if it hasn't happened to you, I don't know that you've ever loved another person. But that's what happens. The first time I fell in love, it was with Sharon Green. And she had green eyes, and I saw her at the rollerland skating rink in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and my whole life changed forever. Uh, She had no idea that I saw her and that I looked at her the way I've never looked at another human being. But I had an aunt who was like a sister to me, and I went to Debbie, and I said, Debbie, I need help because you're a girl. And I was a girl one time. I was a girl in the hopes and dreams of my parents because they already had a boy and I was an accident. But anyway, so the first thing I did when I was born is disappoint. But Debbie had been a girl, an actual girl. And I said... Uh, you got to help me. And she knew I needed help because my room at that time, if you wanted to go into my room and avoid, you know, contracting some kind of disease, you would need to take shots and stuff. So she took me to a department store uh, and, the, you know, the, the, the beauty section, and she got me things like, like Clearasil for, for the zits, and she got me Vitalis. Anybody here ever heard of Vitalis? That's dating me. That slicked back my hair. She tried to clean me up. And uh, she did. And I went to the snack bar at the roller land skating rink. And I positioned myself there like a sentry at his post. And I had asked all of these different people, what does she like? What color does she like? What does she not like? you know. And I was had studied up on all of that. And I, I sat myself there and was waiting for when the body of Sharon Green would break the door and come through there so that I could be there to greet her. I studied to please her. And St. Augustine has said that that is where we are to end up with God. Uh, there, Any obedience to God is better than disobedience. Um... Uh, it's better even if you want to commit adultery to go ahead and not do it. Uh, but we can also blame ourselves for wanting to. It'd be better if we didn't want to. And I don't think that's hypocrisy. I, I had a roommate at Clemson and he, I don't know, he had a low bar for, for holiness. And it was it was that he just gave vent to whatever he thought and then said, well, at least I'm honest. And I don't know, that's setting the bar pretty low. No, and one of my favorite... Um, Novels is a, by a woman named McCutcheon, and it 's one of these uh, mystery novels in a who done it and uh, so the detective is going around interviewing people and he 's interviewing this one person, and the person realizes you 're thinking I might be a suspect, and he says about the w- person who was murdered, "Well, yeah, I had trouble with him i don 't know anybody who knew him who didn't think he needed killing, so you 're going to have trouble. Yeah. Find, finding that out. But it's better if you know somebody like that that really needs killing, if you go ahead and don't do it. That's, that's better. And so um, we, we study uh, to love. And that's what happens with God. We may start off by uh, because we, we have the fear of God. And you talk about something that is missing in our churches today and in our lives is the fear of God. At any given time in the history of the church, there are things that are biblical that kind of take over and edge out other truths. And what, the one I believe that has, that has taken over and edged out other truths, and remember now, I've said this is very biblical. So what I'm about to say is good and true. okay? And two thumbs up. But it's comfort. Everything's comfort. We're broken. We need comfort. And it just seems like everything goes to that nowadays. I hope I'm wrong about this, but this is my perception. So there's never any time for being strong. There's never any time for repentance. There's never any time for all these other things the Bible talks about. It's us looking to God and testing Him and see if He can comfort us. And you just hear it in all of the literature and, and, and so forth. And... Um, it's good to, uh, to, to have the fear of God. The, Bi- the Bible talks about it a lot. And we try to quickly, you know, minimize it by calling it reverence. But there can be fear. There can be fear. I feared my father, who was a very good man, both because I didn't want to be punished, but also because I didn't want to disappoint him. And, and it was fear was the right word, not reverence. And that's why the Bible uses the word fear. So, the fear of God is good. And when we refrain from, from an overt sin because we fear God, that's a good thing. But it would be better if our desires were changed and we didn't want to sin. That we hate the sin like Christ does. And we hate the sin really with no limit of hate because we know that sin put Him on the cross. And we love Him and we don't want to Add to that which put Him on the cross. And so, when we love God, we study to please Him. We want to find out. We're not trying to get away from God's commands because they might cut into what makes us happy. We want to know them because our happiness is so bound up in our gratitude for God, our knowledge that He has all wisdom and He loves us. What could be more foolhardy than not to want to know His commands. And then when we obey His commands, we know that He's pleased with us, and that pleases us, because we want to please them. And let me tell you, Sharon Green was not worthy of the trouble that I went to for her. She never knew I existed. But any effort we put into loving God will be well spent. What pleases Him? How does He deal with us? One of the patterns of God's dealing with with His people throughout the centuries all over the Bible and in our own lives is this. Our God doesn't just give commands. He doesn't just tell us what happened in the past. He doesn't just tell us what's true. He doesn't just scold us for sin and reward us for uh, our obedience. Our God is a God who makes promises. He's the great promise maker and promise keeper. And we'll, we'll never be able to, to grow in deeply and fully realize the relationship we actually have with God insofar as we do not acknowledge and embrace this pattern of God's dealing with us and Live accordingly as those who receive the promise of God. God makes promises that He hasn't kept. That is crucial. He makes promises that He's going to keep. He's going to fulfill, but He hasn't. The promise comes first. And then time passes. And then the fulfillment. And that is crucial to the Christian life. And one of the reasons God does, why does He do this? It's one more way that we see how important the Word of God is. He promises us with words, I am going to do this. This is what is going to happen. And what what is that for us? That is a test. Do we trust His Word or not? Do we trust it or not? This past, if we trust His Word, it changes everything, which I'll talk about in a moment. But then at some point, He fulfills the promise. And in that time between the promise and the fulfillment, we will have either been trusting and believing the promise, and our lives would have been changed drastically because of that, or we haven't been. But He still keeps the promise. And he keeps the promise, and then our reception of that fulfillment is different, and our relationship to him in between the promise and the fulfillment is is altered by whether we trusted him. We put faith in his word. If we trust him, then we learn through our experience with him that he is trustworthy, he is faithful. And then that, what that does is that gives us the confidence to trust all the words that He's told. He's going to keep all the promises. And what happens then? Well, we feel, we feel hope about the future. And our love for Him is greatly deepened. It's greatly expanded that we're involved with this only true God who makes these extraordinary promises and then He keeps them every single time. The passage that I've read comes from uh, the long last discourse in the Gospel of John. And Jesus is preparing His followers that He's going to leave them. And He's really going to leave them twice. He's going to leave them when He goes down into the depths of the earth. He's going to leave them when He's down from the cross and He's buried. And when he's buried, he's, not, he's going to be busy, you know, because um, there's the thriller passage in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Do you, you read the thriller passage? Y'all read the Bible? Isn't this a Bible church? I better not catch y'all not reading the Bible. You, have you read the thriller passage? What's thriller? It did it. What is thriller? It's Michael Jackson. Don't y'all read the Bible? In thriller, people get up from the dead and they dance. And what does Jesus do when he's in the place of the dead? There's an earthquake. And the Bible says that many saints of old came forth from the graves and they walked around and they were seen by many. What is he doing? What is He doing? While He was in, during His ministry, His earthly ministry, He talked about, I'm going to take all of those My Father has given Me, and I'm not going to lose any of them. No one can snatch them out of My hand. And I'm going to raise them up. and I'm going to give them eternal life. He, he said, before He was crucified, He said, I've got the keys of heaven and Hades. I've got the keys. He's using His keys. And it's not time for the general resurrection of the dead. But He's showing what He's doing. He's not dying just to show how much He loves us. He's dying to kill death. He stretched himself out and said, do with me whatever you can. Jesus said a lot of crazy things. Remember when he said, don't fear the one who can just kill you. That's a really weird thing to say. Well, what can they do to me? Kill you. Well, that seems like a lot. And so he stretched himself out. And the Jews and the Roman Empire together did what they could do to him. And it was a lot. What could they do? They could kill him. But they couldn't keep him killed. The grave couldn't hold Him. And the Bible says it. And so it's like an image where the grave's trying, but it can't. And see, that's wonderful, but it's really not wonderful for me that Jesus can rise from the dead if that's all. The issue is, He rises from the dead and he, that means He's got the keys. And He can use them for other people too. And so when He's there in the grave, he uses the keys and shows what's to come. So, but he was away from them. He said, I'm going to be away from you for a little while. And then he comes back and he's with them for a little while. But then he really goes, and that's the big leaving. That's the big little while. And I'm going to be gone and you won't see me. Uh, and that's, that's, that's scary for them. And at the beginning of the long last discourse, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. This is one of God's favorite things to say to his children. It's things like, be, do not fear. Let not your hearts be troubled. Fear not. And the reason that's said over and over again throughout the Scriptures is because there's so many good reasons to be troubled and to be afraid. It's not, he's not saying it because it doesn't need saying but because it does need saying. Jesus was not flippant about suffering. He wept when His friend Lazarus was killed, even though He could raise him up. And part of it was seeing others mourning for the loss of His friend Lazarus and their brother Lazarus. When He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He didn't say, "Ah, this will be over soon. Got this atoning work I'm doing with my Father and the Holy Spirit. No, he wept and wanted to find another way. He wasn't saying, I can't wait to suffer for this atoning work. He didn't. And when he was on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Bible doesn't teach that suffering is good. Sometimes I hear people say, you know, it's almost they almost get to where you know because we do have a few passages. I mean, uh, one time uh, uh, Peter and uh, Silas they said, "Well, hey, I'm so grateful. I was thankful to be uh, count, I was grateful to be counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They'd been beaten. They'd been put in prison. That almost sounds like, hey, man, let's go out and suffer some more. But that is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that suffering is punishment for sin." Suffering's worthy of tears. God comes to redeem us from suffering. When we're in the new heaven and the earth, here's what's not going to happen. I've already uh, said that bad thing about the, the footprints poster. That was definitely wrong. I won't do that again. But in the new heaven and the new earth, it's not going to be that now we're here and we can just suffer all the time and it doesn't bother us. Suffering's going to be gone. Suffering is not good in the way the good things are. Suffering is unable to stop God's purpose of delivering us from suffering forever. And when we suffer, when our, when our loved ones suffer, we don't say, "Well, suffering's good. God going to teach you so much. Maybe I can make you suffer a little more so you'll learn more." No, we try to relieve the suffering. Indeed, God teaches us through suffering. What does He teach us? To love suffering? No, he teaches us other things, but not to love suffering. Our God is going to deliver us from suffering. Suffering can't keep us from Him. But suffering is going to end. And we, our God in Jesus Christ is the great physician. But He told them, I'm going to be gone. And you're not going to see me. Uh, And that disturbed them. And it was right for it to disturb them. That's why He had to say, let not your hearts be troubled. This is going to be a troubled time we're not experiencing now what we were made for ultimately. We're experiencing now in this earth, in this time between the times, what was meant for us during this very short time. And part of what that means is we are not with Jesus Christ bodily. And that is that is a deficit. He's not showing us by sending the, he, said, he told them, I'm going to be gone, but I, He said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. And I'm going to go make a home for you. He's a homemaker. He made a home and we destroyed it. He's going to make us another home and we're not going to destroy it. We're not going to have the last word on God's plan to have His children in the home He made uh, and loving their faithful Heavenly Father. He's going to have the last word. But our, He told them, I'm going to go away and I'm going to do some things. I'm going to make a home for you so that I can come get you and so you can be where I am. And I'm going to send this counselor, this paraclete, this one called alongside, the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you through Him. And the Holy Spirit will make my Father and myself live inside of you. But what, it, what we're not being taught is we just don't need to see Jesus face to face. We don't need to be with Him bodily. That's not what we're being taught. We're being told how this situation is going to be handled until we see Him face to face. I will see you again. I will come and get you. That's going to take time. And they don't understand it. And so what does He do? He's promising them. And He's warning them. And He's preparing them for what's to come. And it's going to be hard. But on the other end of it, our, we're going to rejoice and our joy is going to be full and no one's ever going to take it away. But that comes later. But you are, we're meant to, why is he telling us? Why didn't he just do it? You know, uh, the, the dismal Dane, the theologian Soren Kierkegaard said, don't promise anything. Because it's, it's presumptuous. We read in James, you know, don't say we're going to go to this and that city and we're going to trade and we're going to do this, we're going to do that. You should say, and this reminds me of my grandmother who was always, always dying. We would ask her, Nana, are you going to go so-and-so? And she would say, well, if the Lord wills and I live. She was always dying. <laughs> and, you know, eventually she did die. So she was right. But it took me a while as a child to grow up and realize she was quoting from James. There is something presumptuous that says, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. Well, wait a minute. You don't, we can't, we just sung today. We can't keep ourselves alive. And so this promise is given and the promise is going to be sure and it changes their lives in the meantime. And he talks about... He knows they don't understand it. They don't don't understand it even after he gives them this, this illustration, this analogy about the birth of a child. But it is in the birth of a child that we can see very clearly, I think, the way promises are supposed to work for us as Christians. And it works by prolepsis. and That's the word I thought of driving here. I don't know what it means, but I feel like as a doctor... I should have a certain number of words like that. But prolepsis means something in the future that reaches back from the future into the present and has an impact. That's what prolepsis means. So when we're told, and I I can remember a world when a couple was not told that they were pregnant. It was just the woman. And you know, I do think we have lost the ability to distinguish these things in some way lately. Have you noticed that? We have a Supreme Court Justice who can't, does, she doesn't know, she's clueless. She knows she, But anyway, I can remember when only women got pregnant. But, but by the time my, my wife was pregnant, we were, it was the whole couple was somehow pregnant. We were pregnant. Now, I just want to say now, related to that whole birthing thing, is I want to thank God in front of all of you God, thank You for making women and not making me one. I just approve of both of those decisions by our God. And, and I am glad I was born when the men go into the, the, the delivery room because I remember when they didn't. Even if they weren't smokers, they smoked and they paced. And they didn't go. In the World War II generation, they didn't go into the delivery room. And I've decided that going into the delivery room is really what makes you a man. Why? Because I wasn't born at the right time to fight in a war, but I did go into the delivery room. And the World War II people didn't, so I say, well, you don't know then. This is really what makes you a man. (laughs) Our generation. But when we were told we were pregnant, Since we can't know, what what did we have when we were told she was pregnant? What we had was the promise that we would be parents of a child who would grow inside of her, be delivered, and we would have a family of three. That, that That was the promise. But since we couldn't know if that child would come to term or survive the birth process, and also couldn't know if my wife would survive since those things since the since the promise was not certain we just pretended like we didn't hear that and we just lived life as normal smoking cigarettes a lot we didn't smoke cigarettes but that's ridiculous isn't it when you're told something like this just like when you get a bad diagnosis my brother was diagnosed with leukemia last week. I'm going to go see him in Atlanta on the way home today. Your whole life has changed to the extent that you assess what you've been told about the future is real. And so even though it wasn't certain that we would ever have a child and be parents, what did we start doing? We started preparing. We were buying things. We were talking about it all the time. We thought about it all the time. We we were like parents already. Started behaving that way. That which hadn't happened yet reached into the present and properly changed our lives. And if the promises we get through a pregnancy test or... A medical diagnosis are uncertain. And they rightly change our lives. What we think, how we feel, who we know we are. People looking for their identity. As soon as I found out she was pregnant, I was a father. It wasn't something I generated from inside. Our identity comes from outside us. Everybody's looking for something in here. Our identity comes from outside us. Because we came from outside us. We're creatures of a Creator. He gives us our identity. You're my child. You're a husband. You're a father. You're a brother. You're a minister of the Word. This identity confusion is we're looking in the wrong place. We receive our identity. It reaches back. And so He's telling them. He says, when a woman's time comes, she has pain. And I messed up on this big time because um, I found myself saying, you know, the delivery wasn't really that bad. And you've asked me to speak today. And I, I don't know what Brad's thinking. He needs to do due diligence. My wife said, I'll speak to that. But I, I was just relieved at how, you know, but it's wrong, just <laughs> stupid, ridiculous. God gives us these promises because they're true. And if we're going to live by the truth, we must live with faith in His Word for what He's going to do in the future. If we live as if... Our, our, we're going to, we are going to lament now. We are going to lament. We are going to grieve. And the world's going to rejoice. We've been told that. But we're also told, but I'm coming back and you're going to rejoice And your joy will be full. And no one can take your joy. If we live as though that's not true, we live according to a lie. Because it is going to happen. It is going to happen. And so the only way to live according to the truth is to live according to the truth. His promises are going to be fulfilled.